0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. It's a great honor for me to welcome you to this special event. I'm Marlies Osterman. I'm the current chair of the research committee of the ESICM. And I'm very honored to, to spend 30 minutes with Professor Paul Young from New Zealand. Professor Young will be very well known to most of the audience as he's conducted major Clinical trials in critical care that have impacted our clinical practice. Uh, For those of you who are less familiar with him, he's the um, current deputy director of the Medical Research Institute in Wellington, New Zealand, and a very senior critical care clinician, again, in Wellington, New Zealand. And as most of you know, he's led and developed many clinical trials exploring very common things in critical care, like oxygen, blood transfusion, uh, stress also prophylaxis, and infection management. So it's a great honor. And uh, I'm very grateful to Paul for making time late in his day. I think it's quite late for you. Is that right, Paul?
1: It is a little bit late. It's just uh, coming up towards bedtime now um but uh it's a making... great pleasure to be here and uh the honor is really all mine because um this has been a fantastic collection of uh talks with um some great minds in critical care and uh it's a real honor and a pleasure to be here uh,
0: paul i i will um Uh, wait for questions from the audience. They have an opportunity to put questions in the chat, in the TV ESICM TV chat, but uh, before they arrive, I just like to ask you a question. So you are a very successful, internationally renowned researcher. How did you get there from being a trainee in critical care to now a famous for care researcher who has impact on what we do every day?
1: Um, you know, it's a really funny question because if I try and think about how I ended up in the position that I have ended up in, I don't think that I could do it again if I, if I tried. You know, I mean, I finished my training in intensive care medicine in 2010 and at that point i um i hadn't published a single paper um in in a peer-reviewed journal in intensive care medicine and i i, I sort of wanted to be a clinical researcher and i was fortunate to be working in an intensive care unit where i was allowed essentially to um, you know do what i wanted to do with my clinical time and find my own path and so i I sort of took the approach of um really just pretending to know what i was doing until such point as i actually figured out what i was doing so my first uh, clinical trial was a you know a relatively small single center study looking at remote ischemic preconditioning and high-risk cardiac surgery um uh, where i sort of consented all the patient myself all the patients myself and i wrote the protocol myself and i wrote the case report for myself and i um you know i enrolled all the patients i collected all the data and i um managed to get that trial done and it was incredibly difficult um, and it took quite a bit of time and it wasn't very good um but i, I sort of recognized quite early on that if i was going to be successful in research that it would be really important to align myself with people who were successful and people who, um, were able to get funding from peak funding bodies. And so I basically looked at um, who in my hospital had got money from the Health Research Council of New Zealand, which is the peak uh, funding body in, in New Zealand that funds investigator-initiated research. And there was one um, one person in my hospital who had uh, got uh, funding. And in fact, they got funding to um, conduct a randomised placebo-controlled trial of paracetamol in patients with influenza. And so I thought, well, I mean, we could uh, do a study looking at paracetamol in patients who've got fever and infection in the intensive care unit? I mean, that just seems like an important question. We give a lot of paracetamol out. And so um, I wrote a grant um, and uh, someone else agreed to have their name on it because I had no track record whatsoever. And uh, that person, who was uh, richard beasley who's the director of the medical research institute of new zealand um supported uh, me in the process of writing that grant and uh, and uh, it, it, the study got funded and so then my second randomized controlled trial got published in the new england journal of medicine and uh, that was the heat trial and uh that was really where it started and and from there i formed closer bonds with uh, senior members of the australian new zealand um, intensive care society clinical trials group including people like rinaldo belomo and simon finfer and uh, john myberg and um, jamie cooper and sandy peak and 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 many other people who've always um been great collaborators and so um things have really just evolved naturally from from there and and i feel like you know the other thing that i've always tried to do is i've always tried to be a valuable collaborator so i i i I never want to be a passenger on anything so if I, i receive um you know a paper um to provide feedback on then i'll genuinely engage with it and i'll do my best to um add value to it and and to try and make it better and the same with with every study you know i do my best when i'm participating in my in my hospital and other people's trials to enroll as many patients as possible um and i guess to be a collaborated that other people feel makes a worthwhile contribution. So that, that's my rather prolonged answer to your opening question.
0: Thank you, Paul. That's um, it's it's very interesting to hear that you you said you had not got a single had never done a clinical trial until you started working, and now you've got many trials under your belt, and you've got. I think it's 10 New England Journal of Medicine papers in your name. Yes,
1: recently, yep, that's right.
0: It's very impressive and it's encouraging for all of us and in particular for trainees. Can I get back to, you've already mentioned the HEAT trial, but I'd like to go back to the um, uh, PLUS trial, which has just been published. uh, And it also has already generated some questions on the chat. So in the PLUS trial, you compared buffered solutions with saline, tried to answer an important question which has exercised a lot of us. And you showed no difference in mortality, despite enrolling more than fifty five thousand patients. And you showed no difference in severe acute kidney injury. So the question from the chat is, what do you do in your own clinical practice now?
1: Well, I mean, I think one important point to make is that um, I, I think you need to view the PLUS trial not in isolation, but in the context of all of the other trials that are being conducted. So there's been a number of really high quality trials evaluating um, balanced crystalloids and saline in patients who are critically ill on in the intensive care unit. And um, the PLUS trial really is I think, in many respects, the final piece of the puzzle in terms of large-scale clinical trials in in this space. If you look at every one of those trials, um, the point estimate with respect to mortality favours balanced crystalloids. Um, And if you add up all the deaths in the balanced crystalloid group in all of the Large high quality randomized controlled trials in this patient population that are of a with a low risk of bias, you end up with a 0.8% absolute difference in mortality between the two groups based on the point estimate. And um, you know, in the meta-analysis that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the same time as the Plus trial. Um, the 95% confidence intervals to go with that absolute difference of 0.8% by point estimate um, range from, you know, a modest reduction in mortality with balanced crystalloids up to sort of just crossing the line of no effect with a p-value of 0.07. And in a a Bayesian analysis that accompanied uh, the frequentist analysis, there was an 89.5% chance that balanced crystalloids reduce mortality um, on average um, compared to saline when they're used for ICU fluid therapy. So my take on the current uh, state of the evidence is that um, given that these are widely available fluids that are, um, you can choose between them, you know, without difficulty and the, they're not expensive, um, I, I can't understand how anyone would look at, at data from a series of comparative effectiveness trials that show an almost 90% chance that on average choosing balanced crystalloids is better, how, how people would do anything other than choosing balanced crystalloids in general terms. Now, you know, there, there are some exceptions and there was and there is evidence of heterogeneity of treatment effect Um, with the pretty strong suggestion that for patients who have traumatic brain injuries, saline actually reduces the risk of mortality compared to balanced crystalloids. Um, And there is, I think, ongoing uncertainty about whether that risk with balanced crystalloids also extends to uh, patients who are at risk of cerebral edema who who have other acute brain pathologies, including things like patients who have hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and patients who have subarachnoid hemorrhage and stroke. Um, but, but my take on, on, on where we're at with uh, the balanced crystalloid story is that um, for most situations, the best choice based on the data that we have available to us is balanced crystalloids and a 0.8% absolute mortality difference corresponds to a number needed to treat to save one life of 125. And so when you consider that millions of litres of crystalloid fluid therapy are given to patients all around the world um, in intensive care units, you know, every day, that's actually an effect on mortality that, that's profoundly important for global public health.
0: Thank you. Um, there's a question from the chat. Do you think we do this is the end of any further fluid trials? Have we answered the question?
1: I, I can't see um, large scale fluid trials in heterogene, heterogeneous critical care populations um in the foreseeable future, because I think you know, for the balanced crystalloids versus saline story, given that it's comparative effectiveness of treatments that are widely used and widely widely available, an almost 90 percent probability that one option is better than the other. I mean uh, that should be enough um, and it's hard to see, how you would justify doing another large-scale um, trial to make that comparison. Now, you know, whether other other fluid questions emerge and whether there's need to answer specific questions in certain populations of patients um, or in different settings other than the intensive care unit setting, well, I mean, that that's possible, but I personally can't see um, another large-scale trial in heterogeneous in a heterogeneous critical care population happening in the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, that's clear. So Paul, you most of your trials focus on on practice, routine clinical practice, things we do regularly at the bedside. And you've done trials related to infection you've already mentioned your HEAT trial there's a question in the chat and the question is is procalcitonin still a useful tool to use antibiotics so do you use procalcitonin in your routine clinical practice as a guide
1: so it's it's not even a test that's available in my hospital so i can honestly say that in my entire intensive care career i've never ordered a single procalcitonin
0: <laughs> would you like to have procalcitonin if you had the opportunity? um I, I
1: i would have to say that i'm not really familiar enough with the literature in the area to give you an informed comment about that um yeah i, I can't answer the question i don't have the expertise
0: um, I have another question here from the audience, and they relate. This question relates to this sometimes seen as a bit of a challenge between pragmatic trials and individualized therapy. So on the one hand, we all aim to personalize our therapy to give individualized management, but we rely on trials like plus or or use. Um, your stress ulcer prophylaxis trials, where thousands of people were randomised to one or the other therapy. How do you bridge this dilemma?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's it's a really important question there, and and I think, um, in a sense, the the I don't think the dichotomy is all all that helpful, right? So so i i i guess the problem i have with saying oh we don't need any pragmatic trials and the only thing that you should do is just individualize the therapy is that the only sense in which the therapy then becomes individualized is is to the doctor and whatever internal narrative they've created in their in their head um and I just struggle with the notion of how um, really individualizing that therapy in that way, particularly when it's individualized around physiological surrogates, can be useful. Um, because actually, we know from from, you know, a range of different clinical situations, that making the physiology better can make the patient in front of you look like they're better but make them more likely to die. Um, But that is not to say that I believe that we should just treat every patient the same. In fact, I think that where we actually need to get to is a position of being able to explore heterogeneity of treatment effect in a meaningful way using trials um, that have randomized enough people to be able to meaningfully understand what happens not just on average but what happens um, to specific subsets of patients and so in relation to the fluid therapy space, and in particular, the comparison of balanced crystalloids and saline, we have a really great collaboration of investigators who've conducted the large scale randomized controlled trials where we now have data from over 35,000 patients who've been randomised to saline or plasmalite or balanced crystalloids and we're in a position to conduct individual level patient data meta-analysis to understand whether there are particular subgroups of patients where one therapy or the other is better. So A lot has been said about the notion that all you need to do to decide which fluid to give is look at the chloride, right? So in the individual patient data meta-analysis, we'll be able to look at the patients who have a low chloride, a normal chloride, and a high chloride, and we'll be able to establish whether or not actually the chloride level is a determinant of the response to therapy or not. Because it might be, um, but it also might not be. The same goes for things like the degree of uh, acidosis. And also, I think, you know, for the conditions that we've already talked about where um, the patients may be at risk of cerebral edema, understanding whether saline is actually the best choice is only going to come from uh, randomized data where we're in a position to. Um, draw strong causal inferences about the effect of therapies on outcomes. Um, You know, I think another example of the way in which you can potentially get to this question of individualising treatment and being confident that in individualising the treatment that you're choosing the right treatment that doesn't just improve a physiological surrogate but actually results in a patient having a better outcome is the MEGAROX trial. So in the MEGAROX trial, we're enrolling 40,000 patients who require unplanned invasive mechanical ventilation in the intensive care unit. And within that, tri- within that overarching 40,000 patient trial, we have a series of parallel nested um, trials in important subgroups. Including patients with sepsis, where we hypothesize that liberal oxygen therapy is better, patients with um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, where we hypothesize that conservative oxygen therapy is better, and patients with acute brain injuries um, other than hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, where we again hypothesize that more liberal use of oxygen is better. And so, Within the MEGAROX trial and also within its individual um, nested trials, we have um, very large numbers of patients and we're adequately powered to detect, I I think, what everyone would regard as realistic treatment effects that might be attributable to the oxygen therapy therapy regimens that we're testing. And so I guess my, my answer to the should the treatment be individualized or should we just give the same thing to everyone? Or you know, should we individualize treatments or do pragmatic trials? My answer is that we should do large scale pragmatic trials so that we can individualize treatment based on the effect that treatments have on patient imported outcomes, not based on the effect that they have on physiological surrogate measures that might be misleading.
0: That sounds fantastic and very um, novel and uh, clearly in line with your overall approach to research, i.e. finding new research methodologies. And that brings me to a question which is again from the audience and it uh, really relates to us and our responsibility towards trainees. And the question is, how do we develop the next generation of researchers What is our role and responsibility?
1: That's a really great question. And, you know, I think it's one that um, is really hard to answer because um, I think that the honest truth of it is I don't really think that research is for everybody, right? So I think there are some people who are... um, you know tr- really drawn to it who are going to end up doing it n- no matter what there are some people who um, will never do it no matter what and there's some people in the middle who um, you know might well be swayed by their experiences um, you know I-, I think that for me i, I was probably going to do it no matter what But my initial experience of trying to do it by myself wasn't very much fun um, and didn't lead me to doing research that was meaningful. Um, And so I, I do think that it's really important that when people show an show an interest, that you you, you know, when you're in a position like I'm in, that you you try and do your very best to. Um, support them but at the same time I think until you've done research it's really hard to know if it's really for you Um, and in particular I think actually a huge portion of being a successful researcher is writing so if you if you don't really genuinely enjoy writing then you'll find it really hard to um, to actually do clinical research and to be effective on the other hand if you if you can't help but do writing and you're drawn to it then i think that you will um, be in a much stronger position um, to actually be able to make a career of it.
0: Um, That brings me to my final question in the last uh, one and a half minutes. The question is, what should trainees do if they are interested in a career in critical care research and ideally would like to run trials and have New England Journal of Medicine papers? what What is your advice to the next generation of trainees? Well, I mean, I
1: do think there is a lot to be said for pretending to be it until you become it. So, you know, like, I guess what I mean by that is if you want to do clinical research, you should do it. Um, it once you start doing it, then you're a researcher. Um, and and in the initial stages, that, that does mean doing uh, A lot of stuff for yourself but everything that you do you learn and you get a bit better the other thing that i think is really important is to um align yourself with people who have had the kind of success that you would like to have so if your aspiration is to conduct clinical trials that get published in the new england journal of medicine find someone Who um, has done that and attach yourself to them so that you can learn from them. Um, Now, everyone who's published a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, right, they're not all going to be helpful for you, but there's a lot of people I think who are out there who are successful researchers who, you know, thrive on the opportunity to support new and upcoming people um so i think the best strategy is to make yourself known and if you find someone you don't make connection with them um, and you know you still want to do it then find someone else find someone who fits
0: thank you paul i'm afraid we've come to the end of this uh, session i could Go on forever there are a few more questions but i'm afraid i have to stop i'm very grateful for the opportunity and i'm sure the audience is very grateful for your listening to you and for your your very practical advice and good luck with thank the next you. trial
1: thank you very much and thanks very much for your time